Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, Afghanistan. It was barely mentioned in this year's election. But while U.S. attention has turned from the Taliban to ISIS, the Taliban is back, stronger than ever, and the government is on the brink of collapse. The view from the streets of Kabul and from the Pentagon. It's Wednesday, June 7th. I mean, my parents, they have these images, they have these experiences that they talk about of a different Kabul in the 60s and 70s, of concerts, open concerts, of cinemas, of, of coffee shops, of rooftop bars. My colleague Mujib Mashal grew up in Kabul and is now a reporter there. They have a nostalgia for that past that increasingly it seems imaginary to me because I just cannot connect that nostalgia they have with the current reality. I think the way we describe life in the cities, it's almost, it's almost become a game of chance. Hmm. And some days, some people are just not lucky. In the countryside, every month, every day, you hear stories of a wedding convoy over an IED. Hmm. Just beginning of new life ended before it's even started. There's no front line to this war. But the front line could be in front of your office. It could be as you're leaving home. It could be at the bus stop. It could be at the market where you're buying your groceries. Any moment, any day, anywhere around the city is a possibility of something like this happening. On our right is just a full row of tall blast walls. So my family lives in north of the city, and our offices, uh, the New York Times Bureau, is right in the diplomatic quarter of the city. And, and over the blast wall, sort of razor wire, but then... And then there are three roads that lead to our offices. Mm-hmm. The middle road is the British Embassy. Too many security checks. We sometimes avoid that mm-hmm. because it just takes a long time. And they check the car for explosives before they allow us in the parking. Then it leaves us two side roads. It was one of those three roads that were blown up that killed about 100 people last week. A devastating suicide truck bombing in Kabul. In the early morning hours, the massive truck bomb ripping through what is supposed to be one of the most secure parts of Kabul. The blast so powerful, it shattered windows a mile away. Buildings were leveled, bodies scattered. 
cars incinerated. And just the sheer size of explosion was so big that the windows of our office were all gone, all smashed. Of the Times Bureau. Of the Times Bureau. And what it makes me think of is that every day that we would drive up through that street, there were about four policemen mm-hmm. who would sort of look at our car. Um, we, would, we would enter through that street many times, and, and they would just smile and they would pass us through. Those guys are gone. Four guys with AK-47s for $200 a month, that's what they make trying to stop a truck full of explosives. And I think about that image. Those four guys, I know that they haven't even found their pieces. Um, they evaporated. They haven't even traced anything that's left of them. What's unfolded in Kabul mm-hmm. since this attack that you described? Two days after the attack, there was a protest that gathered at the explosion site. Mm -hmm. It started small, a few hundred people. They were basically critical of the government for not protecting against such a massive security breach. But as the protest grew, it became more tense. The police start firing. They're basically chasing the crowds right now. People are running. They're military vehicles. Continuing. Initially, it's they're firing in the air, but we see video evidence, we see pictures that the guns are actually not pointed at the air, hmm. that they are sort of at a you know lower angle, um, and it leaves seven people dead. Jeez, so this is this is a protest that turns into a riot, and it sounds like its original purpose was to seek greater security. Greater security and to express sort of solidarity with the casualties. And the next day, at the funeral of one of the protesters, ministers, political leaders, they all gathered. And boom, another explosion. The dead body is left there on the ground before even it's buried. 20 other people drop around him. Just as a reminder, so the reason the United States invaded Afghanistan 15 years ago was pretty explicitly to stamp out the Taliban and to stamp them out because of the belief that they had harbored terrorists who Mm -hmm. were involved in the September 11th attacks in the United States. What's happened to the Taliban since then? Initially, once the U.S. started using force, the Taliban were willing to negotiate. Mm -hmm. This is 2001, 2002 we're talking about. The U.S. said, no, we're going to come after every single one of you. And they did. And for a few years, they had the upper hand, the Americans and the Afghan government. Except once the U.S. shifted its attention to Iraq with the invasion of Iraq, Mm -hmm. the Taliban used that opportunity to regroup. And 15 years later, they're probably more powerful than they were in 2001 in terms of how much damage they can cause how much violence they can wage, and how much they threaten the survival of the local government in the provinces. How is it possible that they are more powerful now after the United States and and the Allied forces sought and seem to be on the way toward basically decimating them and their power? That's the biggest frustration. The Taliban are numbered at about 30 to 40,000 fighters. Mm -hmm. 
30 to 40,000. On the Afghan government side, you've got about 330, 40,000 forces. Add to that about 10,000 coalition forces, Americans, NATO. That math is very lopsided. And you look at the fact that last year, 2016, the Afghan forces lost about 20,000 men. That means they have a remarkable rate of regenerating every year. How does that happen? How do you regenerate about 70% of your force year after year? It boggles my mind. I don't know the answer to this. But not only do they regenerate every year, they keep on striking harder. But you've got other actors now. You've got affiliates of the Islamic State who are claiming some of these attacks. Mm-hmm. The latest one, nobody has claimed yet. The big one that killed about 100 people. But there's a massive gray area also between the Taliban and the Islamic State. Um, a lot of the Islamic State are local fighters. They're former Taliban from Pakistan, from Afghanistan. So the battlefield is getting complicated also in terms of the number of groups operating. This situation that you're describing, which does sound really complicated, can you put it into a larger context for me within Afghanistan's history? Well, Afghanistan, it's, it's been a battleground for clashing ideas for a long time during the British Empire. We were the buffer between the Russian Empire and the British Empire mm-hmm. when the U.S. became sort of the center of the Western world and then opposing it was communism. We became the clashing ground for those two ideas also. So that was a place to bloody the communist's nose. And what happened in the process was that it destabilized what was a pretty relatively stable Afghanistan, actually. Destabilized it, created new actors. And one of those actors was, of course, the Taliban. Well, the the Taliban was sort of the grew out of those original actors because the original actors were created in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But the Taliban traced their ideological source to the religious schools in Pakistan that were funded by CIA money to create this ideological opposition to communism. Once the Soviets were defeated, the U.S. packed up and left, only to return after 9-11. This map you're laying out, it feels like you have... On one side, the insurgents, mm-hmm. Taliban, ISIS. On the other, you have this problem-plagued government, and then you have the United States forces which back this yes. really problematic government. In the eyes of Afghans who are living through of all of this, mm. who is to blame for the current woes? Mm. I mean, who do they see as the person most responsible. Hmm. What is very clear when I travel to the countryside, when I go to the villages, Mm -hmm. there are parts of the country that every couple months, it switches hands. There are districts, there are villages that that for a week, it's the government controlling, and then two weeks later, it's Taliban. It goes back and forth, back and forth. They get trampled by both sides. And it almost no longer makes a difference to them anymore. Because what was promised to them in 2001 as a better alternative to the Taliban, democracy, rights, economic prosperity, all those ideals have faded now. So they, on the one hand, they get the Taliban. They're brutal. They're violent. On this side, they get the government. It's corrupt. It's fighting each other. And when they come take over, they can't defend their area. So they leave it. They leave the local population vulnerable to the Taliban again. So it, there's a lot of blame to be thrown around. Mm-hmm. 
But what is very evident, very clear, is just the suffering of the local people. Do Afghans feel that this war has been forgotten by the United States? Yes. Absolutely. Because when you look back at the elections, it was not even mentioned more than once or twice. During, in the U.S. presidential during election? During the whole, and people are watching very closely in Afghanistan. Hmm. We go back to that, that idea of a cycle. This war has been a cycle. And they thought the American election could be another refresher hmm. of attention. But it was not even mentioned. So how do you personally feel about the war 16 years later as somebody who, who grew up there? It's the uncertainty that 16 years later, and as a reporter, I have a closer, deeper look at the uncertainty. Uh, the average person may think that there is some solution being worked at mm -hmm. secretly, that we don't see it. I would imagine that. Right? But what disappoints me is as a reporter, the deeper I dig, the more I don't see it. Hmm. So, so as an Afghan, but also as a reporter, when I, when I look deeper into it and I don't see much, the uncertainty comes off the back of 15 years of a lot of international money that mm -hmm. went in, a lot of lives lost, both Afghan and international coalition. And the attention is exhausted. Over the past 15 years, it was NATO, the U.S., the whole world was paying attention to where is this country going to go. Now I think it's coming to a moment where the light at the end of the tunnel is so dim. And that's what complicates trying to look ahead as to what could be the end to this conflict. On Tuesday, the president's press secretary, Sean Spicer, got a rare question about the White House's thinking on Afghanistan. Before the foreign trip, the president's first foreign trip, uh, senior officials were telling us that you guys would unveil the results of the Afghan review and the president's decision-making after the foreign trip. Do you have a, a timeline for us? When can we expect this announcement? Uh, I think the president will continue to discuss that with uh, Secretary Mattis, General McMaster, and others, and when, when he's feels as though he's comfortable uh, with a plan that, that he wants to push forward, we'll let you know. I have no idea. I do not begin to know what President Trump thinks about Afghanistan, if he's even thought about Afghanistan. My colleague Helene Cooper covers the Pentagon for The Times. With Obama, it was much easier. He was definitely a non-interventionist, and he wanted a timeline on how long he wanted American troops in Afghanistan. And a lot of people at the Pentagon believe that those parameters sort of doomed us to fail in Afghanistan, because as long as you tell the warring groups in Afghanistan that we're going to be getting out no matter what in a X amount of time, all they have to do is wait us out. So you said we don't know what President Trump thinks about Afghanistan. But do we have any idea what his military advisors want? They want at least 5,000 more troops. They want to help continue to train the Afghan security forces. And mm. building up the Afghanistan military is a sort of one of those things that the Pentagon believes that we have to do if there's going to be any chance of getting them strong enough that they can then sort of strong arm the Taliban to the reconciliation table and work out some sort of political reconciliation. And that's what the Pentagon believes they need to do to take away 
this we're about to pull out type mm-hmm. of mentality. They want to give the impression that, look, we're here to stay. We're invested in this country. We're going to be here as long as it takes. And how has the emergence of ISIS in Afghanistan changed the U.S. approach on the ground, if it has? It's helped make the general's plea for more troops a little bit more strident. The generals, the American generals there can now say, look, we've got to make sure that we stop the spread of ISIS and now they're in Afghanistan, We, you know, which is why they're, they're hoping to get you know, up to 5,000 more troops. And I think what the Pentagon wants is to get to a point where the various groups in Afghanistan don't expect that they can wait out the U.S. Is there a consensus within the military that having more troops in Afghanistan is a good idea? There's a big difference between what the generals believe and are asking for and the rank Hmm. and file. A lot of the rank and file question, and you're talking everybody from Marines to Navy SEALs to Army infantry, what are we still Hmm. doing there? You know, I keep forgetting the name of this Brad Pitt movie that's out. We are here to build war machine to support the civilian population to that end you must avoid killing it at all costs and it's so weird because everybody at the pentagon is talking about it and it's a very anti-afghanistan war movie i haven't seen it yet but i've read reviews of it and the guys who you think would be offended by it love it it's amazing to me so many hmm. of them have lost you know colleagues they've lost fellow soldiers and are constantly asking, what are we still doing there? What are we fighting for? But at the same time, you have these officers who say, you know, we've lost all of these people in Afghanistan. We've spent so much blood and treasure on the ground in that country. And then you just turn around and pull out again. Then you get the, what was that for? So it's it's a contradiction at the same time. But the rank and file are always going to follow orders. So is the possibility, Helene, of actually leaving an option being discussed within the U.S. military, just getting out of Afghanistan? Not really. We can't just leave completely because, Mm -hmm. you know, the second you have some sort of attack on the Mm -hmm. United States Mm -hmm. homeland or one of our allies that can be traced back to Afghanistan, you're going to have people going right back in there. And that's one of the reasons why. Let's say the Taliban takes over Afghanistan again. You no longer then have a government that's at the very least, even if they're weak and even if they're completely Mm -hmm. useless, is at least your ally and sharing intelligence with and you're able to come and go as you please. And, you know, that's one of the things I think because counterterrorism is such a big deal and Americans have become so skittish about attacks here, I don't see how we ever actually manage to leave Afghanistan because people are not going to forget September 11 that easily. Helene, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Michael. Here's what else you need to know today. President Trump is claiming credit for a decision by five Arab countries, including Egypt and Saudi Arabia, to sever diplomatic and economic ties to the nation of Qatar, citing its support for terrorist groups. During my recent trip to the Middle East, the president said on Twitter, I stated that there can no longer be funding of radical ideology. Leaders pointed to Qatar. That message from the president surprised U.S. military leaders. Qatar is a U.S. ally a partner in the fight against ISIS, and a crucial military outpost for the United States, with 10,000 American troops stationed there. And 
The Times is reporting that before he was fired by the president, FBI Director James Comey asked Attorney General Jeff Sessions to make sure he would never again be left alone with the president. That request came in February, the day after Comey says that Trump brought him into the Oval Office and asked him to end the FBI investigation into National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's ties to Russia. Comey reportedly did not tell Sessions, his boss at the time, about that conversation with Trump, an omission that Comey is expected to be asked about when he testifies before the Senate on Thursday. Finally, The Times is reporting that the relationship between Sessions and President Trump has grown so tense that Sessions suggested he could resign as attorney general. President Trump remains angry at Sessions for recusing himself from the Justice Department's Russia investigation back in March. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. With no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, and an app that lets you bank anytime, anywhere, choosing Capital One is like the easiest decision in the history of decisions. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC.